Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we are going to learn from someone that is a high school dropout and that has built a 200 million revenue business in literally 12 months. Uh, I think that what you're going to learn, you're going to be blown away. I've I've already been blown away by the conversations that I've that I've had the chance and opportunity to have with him. So. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today to the Dealmaker Show, Derek Wall. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And hello, everyone. So, Derek, so so live in San Jose, that's where you were born and raised until you were 18, the oldest out of six kids. How was life there growing up? <laughs> it was different. Uh, I was there a few weeks ago, and it's a completely uh, different uh, city. Uh, I grew up in the 70s, um, which makes me old. Um, and I, and I grew up in a, in a family that, uh, that, uh, my father was a startup guy in the semiconductor, semiconductor industry. And so I, I, I was exposed as a early young child of, of which, 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 uh, how to start a company, how to build, uh, uh, cubicles, uh, moving into new facilities. Uh, my dad was gone a lot in the semiconductor industry. They, you know, these companies were raising big money in Japan and Tokyo and so forth. And uh, he was busy a lot, but he always brought me by his side on the weekends and during the weeks. And, uh, it was a fascinating time because literally, uh, that those times it was the technology revolution, uh, from a component perspective, uh, in the semiconductor industry, which is actually the driving force behind most and all technology today. Uh, there is uh, always a, a story he tells me. I said, Dad, uh, how, how small were you and how connected when small is this, the valley? He said, Derek, when I was at one of the startups, we started a company called MMI, which actually is AMD today. Uh, he would uh, turn around and say, hey, Larry, uh, we have this paperwork for this. Well, that is Larry from uh, Wilson, Sincini, and uh, Gorazali, uh, one of the most high keen uh, 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 law firms in Palo Alto today. So. Uh, it was uh, it was exposed, but more importantly, as growing up, I, I did not realize uh, about how it all worked until I, I started my first company uh, at the you know the late teens, and I realized that all my friends growing up, their fathers were big bankers, PE uh, PE companies, venture capitalism, and so forth. And so 
it was a it's a very interesting time and it's a great stories i have many stories uh uh, living in uh, Northern California. Well, definitely a, a good one here or there, I guess, dropping out of high school. I mean, here you are uh, looking at your father being wildly successful in this semiconductor space. And all of these people are like highly educated. So why the hell did you drop out of high school? I mean, <laughs> was your father like uh, thinking you were nuts? Or I mean, what, what was going on? Uh, all my siblings, four sisters and a brother are highly educated. Uh, but I'm not going to boast, but I'm probably the most successful. Uh, but they, uh, they do call me the black sheep and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, my father, uh, while I was literally in the middle of my senior year in Northern California, uh, my father decided to move our whole family, um, from Palo Alto or Los Gatos to, uh, sunny Orange County, Dana Point, uh, whereby he, he actually, uh, started a company, uh, a technology company. The first company that actually uh, monitored fetuses uh, in pregnant women via a phone jack. Pretty crazy stuff. So uh, that's pulling uh, me out of uh, school. Um, growing up in Northern California, I became proficient uh, in, in surfing uh, in, uh, in Santa Cruz. And it was a natural progression me to start surfing. And, and as I started surfing in Dana Hills, I became pretty good. Uh, and I met some, some great uh, friends there. Uh, and one of my best friends, uh, was getting paid 60. He was number two in the world. Uh, number one at the time was Kelly Slater. Uh, he was getting paid, uh, like 60,000 a year from Rusty R dot. I don't know if you remember it, uh, pretty big, uh, surf brand. They had financial problems and they dropped them. Uh, and this was in high school. It was a bunch of our buddies, uh, literally, uh, the next day after he got dropped, there was uh, a Bible, uh, sitting on the kitchen counter and, uh, I don't know who grabbed it or if it was me or someone and said, let's start a company. And they pulled it up and it was Ezekiel, which is sold today, uh, surf and brand uh, Nordstrom's worldwide. Uh, and we literally made hats and T-shirts, got in a little CRX and started driving around the world, the U.S. And no matter if it was in Kansas, we went to surf shops. And when Vinny walked in, everyone knew him. And that was kind of my segue into literally bootstrap hawking in the Rolex uh inherited watches that we had from our and uh started with nothing uh and that's kind of why i dropped out of high school <laughs> what an amazing story and 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 this company is still up and running 30 years yes, later so that's yeah 30 years year, i yeah 30 years later I, i've heard numbers are uh they're doing two to three or four hundred million dollars a year uh globally uh which it's which it makes me just blown away you know you start something in the garage and literally uh when you when i left it after a few years and to, to, to main the credibility and the vision of what we had, uh, uh, it's been uh, through a couple of different owners and so forth, but, but uh, it's, uh, it's really cool to still see it. Uh, I so, still get texts from friends with pictures where they are and, and it's in stores everywhere. And you were talking about, that's amazing, and you were talking about doing the door-to-door -door selling. And I think that selling, you know, when, when you're a founder, I mean, you, you sell it and then you figure out how you build it. That's kind of like the mentality, not the other way around, even though there's a lot of people that do it the other way around. But in this case, going door to door, that probably taught you one or two lessons about selling. What did you learn? So I, I, that's funny you said that. Um, literally, when I left the office yesterday and, you know, we're literally on fire uh, on this new company, I was yelling at our senior vice president of a, a certain division. Uh, it's public now, so I won't say it. Uh, and I stopped at three 
uh, potential customers and dropped off samples and I sold them and I got home and emails said, hey, we're placing orders, placing orders, placing orders. So I, I think uh, the natural progression, no matter how, how much you've done, uh, those are the foundations that you need uh, to be uh, to to grow your business as an entrepreneur, you can never keep your eyes off on the fundamentals and the foundation of what you created for sure. Right, it's still because, done today. Because I mean, for example, in your case, I mean, you you were coming from a family where your father was very successful in his in his own um, domain, and so so obviously you had a, a comfortable life, you know, sort of speak. So so from having a comfortable life to going door to door, like really hustling. I'm yes, sure but, that was but, quite but a my, humbling experience. No, 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 not at all. You know why? I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a in an environment, um, and you guys, uh, people laugh at this. My dad would drive up to the office, and and this was in '78 uh, or 1980. And my dad had you know this epiphany to go buy a bunch of Volkswagen Rabbit diesels. You know the ones, the old ones that are like boxes, and then they had black smoke yes. running out because they're diesel. <laughs> well, he would yeah. go buy 20 of them in, in in Europe and ship them here, and that's what he'd drive to work. But he would park next to his BP who was in a new Lamborghini or a Ferrari. And stuff. my dad was completely different. And I think what, what he's instilled in me, it's not about how you have it, what you have. It's not about those things. Those are material things. It's he always told me this, Derek, when you die, a hearse doesn't have a U-Haul attached to it. And so uh, I did not know how successful my father was until I was in high school, my senior year. Uh, my carpool lady uh, picked me up. And said, "Oh my gosh, Derek! I just saw your dad's number one paid in Silicon Valley this this last year." And I I didn't know it. My parents sheltered me. Yes, well, do we have beach houses? Do we have this? Do we have that? But but they were super super frugal. Uh, and I think that's one thing that uh, I didn't learn early on in my successes, which now I actually learn, and we can talk about it in, in later. But yeah. uh, but but yes, I was exposed to the greatness, but also the foundation of how we were brought up was was completely the opposite. And the foundation is critical. So definitely yeah. good lessons for you, but, you know, now that you're a parent, for me, that I'm a father of three little girls and for all of the uh, fathers and mothers that are listening as well. So, so Derek, why the hell did you decide to leave Ezekiel Clothing? I mean, you guys are killing it uh, at that point. And then a couple of years later, you just pack the bags and, and you go and start your next business. What, what happened? So two things, um, we're going to talk about this later. Two things I was taught. Um, I was taught to innovate. Um, I literally innovate. You, I don't. I don't. I didn't. Never wanted to be involved in stuff that you're reinventing a wheel. Or, or, and I know. And I know so many people in this podcast has, has built better mousetraps, right? Uh, I, I was kind of crazy where I'd made rational decisions on. I wanted to conquer the world, but I wanted to try new things. So one day I was surfing uh, in San Onofre in Southern California, and I searched with a, a really good friend of mine, Mark Freeman. And Mark Freeman was a nuclear engineer at the San Onofre plant. And one day he said, Derek, I want you to come see what I built. Uh, and so I went to his house and he had, I think it was one or two huge machines, like these massive steel machines. Uh, and he said, watch this. He put something in the middle of it. He pushed a button and it compressed it. He pulled it out and it was a square board, but it would look like this huge skateboard uh without it rounded around and i said what the heck is this he said derek it's it's snowboarding it's the future this was around 1992-93 when snowboarding was le illegal in most places in california and a lot in most uh, places uh and i 
tried it out. I looked at it. I saw uh, one big thing uh, as Southern California is like literally the Brett, like they, it is the foundation of surf, skate, fashion, and that whole action sports retail. So all the biggies start out of there, right? Um, you know, the, the Volcoms to the Quicksilver, the Billabongs actually in, in, in Australia, uh, um, and, to, and many, 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 Stussy and so forth. So, so, so the connections that you have in that space was big. So I dumped every single penny I had, and we created a company called Crown Distribution. We launched our first brand called Purge Snowboards and then PBS Bindings and then 18 other brands. Uh, we started manufacturing a whole manufacturing plant in, in San Clemente, uh, and we started dominating the world. We were one of the first. And so when you have all these guys that want to create their own brands, but they don't have the facility. So many brands were coming to us. We were doing OEM manufacturing. And fast forward to two years, we had a few hundred employees. I was 23, uh, CEO and founder, and I sold it to a public company. So, so how did you guys capitalize the business? And one quick question. Credit I know you guys, you had uh, 18 brands. So were all these brands around snowboarding? Yeah, so so they were outerwear brands. We had goggles, we had gloves, we had clothing, apparel. Uh, we had a binding company, uh, boot company. Uh, we did not have a helmet, but we did have goggles and so forth. Around. Uh, these things are literally like surfboards, right? So they're cut and they're refined and refined and refined. There's a lot of lot of uh, upkeep on up uh, pr production and uh, to to make them perfect. But when you talk about apparel, when you're talking keystone margins at 50%, 80%, or 100%, uh, we really were pushing the apparel to pay the bills, but also uh, getting the brand out there. Uh, what big windfall that we had is being early on adapter, um, being one of the first, is uh, when you have these kids come out of the woodworks becoming the best, you start sending them uh, snowboards for free. They started getting pictures in magazine, and that's kind of what blew our company up because it was free advertising, and 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 that's kind of we became a global uh, known company. Yeah, no free advertising, word of mouth. I mean, nothing more powerful than that. So, so Derek, you were mentioning credit cards. Yeah. So, uh, how how crazy did you guys get with the credit cards? Uh, I so I we we. We, we dumped all of our savings. Uh, I think we funded the company for, uh, I think it was a couple million dollars, a few million dollars. I, I, I made some money on, on my other deals, uh, but it was literally all our money. And so when you do R&D, you do molding, uh, those things you don't really plan for when you're building stuff. Uh, there's a lot of changes in costs and so forth. And so uh, we uh, literally then partnered with uh, Elon in Austria, Austria uh, to do uh, a, one of our low-end brands. Uh, and they were able to take credit cards. Um, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. This Incredible. is the most, this is the best, this is what, this is what changed me, um, and understanding negotiations. So, um, at the time we had these brands, uh, they, we had paper, uh, four color process and it looked like litter shit because it, it, it wasn't like today's standard. I mean, so <laughs> I literally, the biggest market for us was Japan. Japan was blowing up. Everyone in Japan wanted to distribute it. So we had our marquee brands, uh, and I flew to Tokyo. I was invited to speak at a snow show. I spoke at a snow show. After that, I had every single every single distributor wanted to distribute one my, my one brand. Uh, this was a changing point. I finally realized from a distribution perspective that these distributors had their own unique market, meaning this. Distributor A wanted to sell to the mass market Himaraya, which is Walmart in Japan, or 
distributor B wanted to sell all of the hot brand boutique store uh, snowboard or skateboard companies. And then, so I realized there were six markets in, in Japan. I went back to my hotel room after everyone wanted it. And I called my, my partner, Larry, and I said, fax me, literally. That was the, the, that was the words, fax me, because there's no such thing as email. I think email was barely coming out, right. uh, 93. Uh, I said, fax me in 24 hours, uh, six or seven new brands with the graphics, with the sizes. Uh, give me the cost. I'll price it. Uh, within 24 hours, I went back to each one of these distributors in their office, and I said, here's your brand. Uh, to order, give me an order today, pay 50% deposit today. And I did that six times. I flew back and I think we had like $3.7 million cash in our bank. That's amazing. So I realized we had a product that wouldn't serve all markets, but I realized we had the capabilities of manufacturing multiple lines that appease the mass market and they wouldn't, uh, uh, you know, they wouldn't uh, compete with each other and we wouldn't have, you know, an, an erosion in the markets and so forth. So that, that is the money we actually ultimately were able to catapult our business uh, and, and then sold it to a public company uh, in 2000 uh, or 1994, 95 ish. And you were 21, already a couple of hundred employees. Why the hell did you decide to sell? Well, in, in, in 2001, I uh, started or started it, 2002, 2001, uh, I sold it in 2004, 2005. Now, the reason is, is because um, the market got hot. Uh, a company called Ride just went public. Uh, I was becoming very fragmented, meaning everyone was building uh, brands literally out of their garage, or they were doing OEM manufacturing at all of these massive billion-dollar facilities in Europe, like in, in Switzerland and Austria. And I knew that we would get blown over if we didn't raise money, blah, blah, blah. And it was something that it was more of a project for me uh, to see if I could make this work. To st but I knew in my heart of hearts, I wanted to go and build technology. Uh, and so I sold out. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about that. And, and you sold, obviously, a bootstrap company in the million. So you thought you were on top of the world. So. So I believe that after this, after <laughs> yeah. after this yeah. chapter, you you went and and you actually helped a, a what is the name a Dita uh, to get off yeah. the ground. Yeah, D I T A dot com. Uh, Dita Eyewear. That it. Uh, Dita Eyewear started in uh, I think at the time in ninety four, ninety five, and the whole purpose at the time was going to be a surf uh, and skateboard uh, optical company, which today uh, is probably a three hundred million dollar uh, manufacturing. Uh, OEM manufacturing their brand. They own stores everywhere: New York, uh, LA, uh, da, uh, uh, Tokyo, um, London, blah blah blah. And they're their marquee brand. And that that brand does like a hundred million. But where they make the other couple hundred million, they bought a facility, a manufacturing facility in Japan, where they're handmade. So Tom Ford blah, and BB. I mean, there's their list goes like twenty five. Household brands, they do the design and the manufacturing for them. And they're just, they're doing amazing. So, what happened was I was a kid at 24, had millions in the bank. I moved to Malibu uh, and I uh, lived the, the life of a, of, a, of a kid that was irresponsible, spent money scribblously, uh, and, uh, and helped them get it off. And that, and that was my segue into uh, meeting my. Uh, wife, who was just graduating uh, from UC Santa Barbara, and her brother um, was graduating from Berkeley in computer cognitive science. 
and they're from Northern California as well. Uh, and when being and at uh, my in-laws' house or my soon-to-be in-laws' house, uh, my brother-in-law Bijan uh, and I discussed that you know technology is the future, uh, internet is the future, and so I abandoned everything in Southern California and I literally moved up north before I was married in my in-laws on their farm. And we started uh, my first tech company out of a barn in Marin County, which is wow. cool. Out and of a barn. <laughs> that sounds very original. Yeah, yeah, no, it was literally a barn on, on their, on their uh, you know how Marin County, I don't know if you've been up there, but it's kind of yeah. rural and it's, and it's very, it's gorgeous. So um, we launched a company called Tech Store. Uh, the idea and premises uh, in 1996 was uh, a mon- monetizing current computer distributor the, the the big ones, uh, the tech data, the Ingram micros, the ones that do, uh, you know, worldwide, I think combined they're, they do trillion dollars between all seven of them. Uh, they're the, the, so we wrote all their APIs. We were smart enough. We flew there. We, they didn't even have real time inventory. It was literally the beginnings of it. Uh, and we built it into a tens and tens of million dollar business with, uh, you know, I think 10, 12 employees, uh, at the time. Uh, and we became profitable. Uh, we kept costs down, uh, and we learned how to manage our our P and L. And and it was a it was a different era of internet. Uh, obviously, it was like it was before one uh, what, version one. <laughs> um, and it really cut my teeth from a technology perspective. I learned so much from from my now he's my ex uh, brother in law, but he is the one that that I contribute him paving the way for me for my for being exposed from. You know, day one in tech from the internet, uh, and understanding the right way to orchestrate things. Even though we were using older technology, which is called legacy today, but understanding the the frameworks and understanding uh, the methodology uh, for development uh, and the architecture of development. And so, I kind of, you know, I spent three years um, or two and a half years. We built this company profitable. So the idea, and this was, was a good idea and a bad idea. I learned a lot. Uh, it was a dot-com boom. So I flew to, uh, I were, or I drove down to San Jose where I was born. I met with uh, a dear friend of our families who's uh, a Robert Wallace, who is one of Michael Milken's 12th disciple, uh, who has done billions of dollars in M&A. And I said, I think we're on to something. Is it possible we can use this little tech store that's profitable to kind of shake it out into uh, a, a, a public company and then become this uh, software internet incubator. And we did. We raised a lot of money uh, and we acquired a lot of companies. Uh, unfortunately. How much uh, money did you raise? Um, if you had to guesstimate, you know. What you, you I think doing. we raised like $100 million at the time or so. $80 million, $100 million. I mean, that's a um, lot. That's a lot. So. They, he took over as chairman. He took over the reins. I, I worked on the acquisitions and stuff. He mismanaged everything. Like I, like I, I can talk about the do's and don'ts and everything. The guy was sixty. I was twenty nine. I just, you know, you have faith in people, right? So, um, from a technical perspective, when you're non tech, you 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 make dis- mistakes because your assumptions are X, but they're Y. Blah blah blah. Whatever. So I I, I, I contribute to my own fault being not involved. Um, being fresh in technology myself, but I'm a quick learner. Uh, we made some bad uh, acquisitions, uh, and uh, we were at the World Trade Center. On we were closing the biggest round, and 
that is, I think it was March uh, 2001 when the stock market crashed, uh, 580 points or whatever, the biggest ever, ever. Uh, and I think we were with uh, uh, HBS or, or who was it? What bank was it? I don't remember. But it was they were closing on like a $150, $200 million deal, and it all unraveled. When that all unraveled, my life unraveled. My stock options and all my, not my stock options, my stock I owned that was worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, that was gone. I margined my money. I got calls from my brokers. You know, they didn't have this electronic way. And they said I had margin calls. So when the dust settled, I lost everything, literally. So how long did it take from from that day uh, being there, you know, when the deal, you know, was getting close to to actually this day where where, you, you find yourself with nothing? I mean, I, I, I think it was, it was within a, a month, right? Wow. You, you, when you have to cover margin calls, right. And you, and you have zero valuation, you have zero leverage. You're living like an arrogant, uh, entrepreneur, young 28 exposed to this money or exposed to this data. You, you, you make bad in, uh, purchases. You bake, you live a lifestyle that's not real and it's sustainable. In my opinion, now it's stupid and frivolous. Uh, and, but at the end of the day, these things um, have made me who I am today. It built me character. I was beaten down. I was kicked off my soapbox. I became a man again. I became humble and meek and kind and 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 worried about others because you know what? At the end of the day, it was like I was finally realized I am nothing. No matter if you're big or big or small, but I'm nothing. And and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I, it was more of an epiphany. Uh, and I literally had to start from scratch, literally. So then, so then those days, um, Derek, because for the folks that are listening, you know, we have a lot of founders here listening and, and many of them, you know, they, they are either already, they've, they've been through the ups and downs or they are about to go through the downs. And, you know, I'm sure that there is a ton that they can learn from, from your story, because from your failures is where you really get to learn. And, and I'm sure that, that those dark days for you were, were very, very difficult. So I guess, um, what, what were those dark days like and uh, how were you able to bounce back? So uh, I, I can, I, I'll just give one, one exactly uh, analogy. So after we went public, uh, I resigned and left, right? I, my, my wife and I moved to Colorado. Uh, we built a, a huge home in the mountains. Uh, my father was a, a, a found, my father-in-law was a founder of uh, one of the largest uh, um, re, uh, restaurant chains that everyone knows, but I'm not going to say it because whatever. Um, and he got me to buy a market <laughs> to get out of tech, to clean my mind. I bought this huge market for gazillions of dollars. I tied my home to it. I had all these assets. And when the stock market crashed, everything else crashed. So literally, I signed my home, my life everything at that point over to the banks. I rented a U-Haul. I picked up my stuff and humbly moved back to Southern California. It was done. It was, it was the most humbling experience of my life. I feel terrible for uh, my ex-wife. I put her through hell. As entrepreneurs, we take uh, major risks, but uh, the ones that have uh, had uh, beatdowns, we take calculated risks. Uh, I, I'm hopeful to say that I'm in the calculated risk category now, but you never know if we get kind of squirrely sometimes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, those were the tough times, right. Um, literally losing everything, everything. So, so how were you able to bounce back? 
Yep. So I mean, I'm sure uh, that, that that ride back on the yep. On the so U-Haul so, with your so I knew. So I knew. So I. So obviously, this is what happened. I, so I bought this market in the stock market crash, and I thought I would be able to recover. Um, but the markets were located, and it was multiple uh, in uh, Denver Tech Center, which is across the street of one of the largest Enron buildings. Was across the street from MCI Worldcom. It was in all these companies. I don't. You probably some of the listeners don't even know, but these were the companies that were caught up in fraud. We, this, these markets were contingent around 50 to 100,000 foot traffic within a, a half a mile. Those people were fired because these corporate leaders went to prison, blah, blah, blah. And so it literally ignited everything. But I knew that I was going to have problems. So uh, Murad, a good friend of mine from L.A., through the midst of all this, he said, Derek, what are you doing in Colorado? We just started a company called Price Grabber. You need to get your ass here in L.A. And, and I want you to help us. So I, I kind of had the insight of understanding of uh, go back to tech because tech is where it's at for myself. Yeah. Uh, and so at, through the process of losing everything and crashing and everything, I was already building myself a safety net. I was always and I literally had to borrow money to get fly there. That's how bad it was. It, it, I lost everything. I went from zero. So we started this. A uh, couple years into it, did huge deals. I mean, I think Price Grabber, uh, I don't know, I can probably say it now. Price Grabber bought, uh, we got it sold in 2005 to Experian Interactive. Uh, bootstrapped, uh, we raised 700 grand uh, from just friends and family. Uh, and that was it. It was a CPC model. It was price comparison. So they charge dollars to these uh, retailers to, to, to show in their, in their uh, comparison guide. So it was very frothy. Uh, when the company sold, it was uh, doing, I think, 80 or 81 million in top line revenue. It was netting 68 million net, net, net. So wow. imagine, right? I remember I was one of your customers there. I mean, I remember yeah. I was here in New York City and yeah. I went to buy something at a store. Yeah. And my brother said, hey, this thing is ridiculously expensive. Go on price grabber so that you can compare with other. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that totally was like totally. mind blowing to me. Yeah, yeah. So, no, but, but, but behind the scenes, the, the frothy, it was a Google CPC AdWord, you know, uh, uh, model where it's cost per click, right? So I, in the middle of all that, uh, Scott Blum, the, the founder of Buy.com, uh, called me and said, I, uh, I, have an, I, 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 I have something that I need you to look at and it's concerning to me and I need your help to help me find a solution to it. So um, this was my segue into starting a company with Scott Blum, uh, uh, who... Buy.com at the time was only, I think, a couple of years old. Uh, they had some major problems. They went public. They bar- uh, raised like $300, $400 million with SoftBank. They crashed. The company was resold back in uh, to the, I think it went up to like $4 billion. And uh, I think Scott bought it back for $20 million. So um, I walked in and uh, literally he said, come to the boardroom. And I looked at the boardroom and uh, I saw a screen and he said, I want you to look at that and I want you to think about that and I want you to solve that solution. And I said, what solution? There were so many numbers on the board. And this was a digital board in real time. So the board they built was a custom board that showed uh, how many people are on the site, uh, what, what categories these people are at the site, and what the convergence were at checkout and how many orders a day. So uh, it was, I think it was over 10 million when, I don't know. It was over 10 million users at, in, at, at the time I looked at it on the site right then the second. Wow. And I looked at the bottom left-hand corner uh, and, you, and I saw orders and then conversions. They were converting a half a percent. So 
10 million people or 999, you know, 9.9 million people were going to buy.com, looking at whatever and abandoning the site. So I said, well, we need to recoup and figure out where these customers are going. It was kind of premature for tracking. and mature. So we started trying to really figure out what they were doing. And I think the premises was is that they were going back to, to shopping guides because Google Shopping didn't even be, it wasn't even existent at the time. Uh, and so uh, we decided to start a company called Buy Now, buynow.com. Uh, and it was a shopping comparison site. It's going to compete with Price Grabber, NextTag, uh, BizRates. Uh, Shopzilla, all the old shopping guys, all the ones that got bought out for a half a billion dollars. All of them did. So basically, um, they gave you the opportunity. They said, okay, there, you know, you come, you do this thing, and and, and let's see if you can help us to address this. Uh, buy.com, yes, 100%. Yeah. So, so we, so I, my, I, I said, Scott, give me an IT guy. And uh, he said, I have the smartest guy in the world, uh, Jason Bosanoff, a kid that got 100% on his SAT. His GMAT was like 100%. It's just, he, the guy was a brainiac. We started building the site within three months, uh, and then I had an epiphany. I said to myself, why are we rebuilding something that already exists? This does not make sense. Why don't we go to all these shopping guides, nine of them, uh, pull their API of data, do deals with them where, where we give you 20% for a referral, we keep the 80%, and then put these shopping uh, competitors, if you will, at the time, on the product page. So if they're selling... A computer, it's going to say, it was, back in the day, it would say Circuit City, Best Buy, Amazon, back in the day. So it showed the lowest price by them, and or you can buy it at, 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 at uh, buy.com. The theory behind them, my theory was, is that these people were going to other shopping guides, and they were they were abandoning shopping elsewhere. So um, I, fortunately, and I still can't believe it, uh, everyone agreed, which made sense. It's a, it's a, it's a qualified referral to their to their uh, 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 to their customer, like a, a Best Buy. So literally, when a customer went to a computer page and they clicked on Best Buy, uh, uh, at the time I think average CPC was a dollar twenty-five a click. Uh, um, price Grabber charged uh, uh, Best Buy a dollar twenty-five. Price Grabber kept twenty-five cents. We kept a dollar. Uh, we launched it uh, within probably 30, 40 days. Uh, and we, our first day we were processing 30, 300,000 clicks. Uh, I think it netted 200, 207,000, uh, a day. So that was, did you guys, my, did you guys so have like fun. architecture, architectural issues with so many users going like so fast? During the no, yeah. or not? no, not at all. No, no, not at all. So, so yeah, so that, that is when we started building this, um, gland, like a, a layer of, of just a, a simple architecture structure, um, okay. where we were actually housing the architect architecture into one big database, but it was drawn equally so that we didn't have this, uh, it wasn't redundancy in a, in a sense that it, that it didn't, uh, it didn't, the, the pipeline wasn't getting filled up. So it was delivering what we wanted. It was like an ad, it was like an ad platform, right? Okay. So everything's cached and it, and it just delivers and it updates it. They, if that price update pushes our database in, on, on a skew level. So that was kind of emerging technology, whatever, but, but it worked. And, and through that time, uh, we literally fundamentally changed buy.com to losing money to making money, this stupid little feature. So over the last, for the next year and a half to two years, we have this huge competitiveness uh, overall in the market where shopping guides were dying. Uh, no one was using them because big brother uh, Google and Amazon were, were leaving the way of shopping. So that drove down CPC from $1.25 to cents. Uh, and 
then it wasn't even worth it because we were making from hundreds of thousands of dollars a day to $5,000 a day. I remember, and that's the very true facts because, you know, when you run into things that change, it, it changed drastically. So that's when we essentially turned buy.com into a sh uh, marketplace. So we invited the 20,000 sellers through the feeds of Price Grabber, and we contacted them d directly to say, hey, do you want to sell on our site? We'll make it CPA, which is cost per acquisition, no CPC, you'll love it. And that's how we created a shopping uh, guide slash uh, marketplace at buy.com. And it was super, super successful because now we can charge 18% on a computer back then, you know, of a $300 computer, do the math, it's like 60 cents, you know, acquisition. So well, that was very successful. Our whole team worked our butts off to, to getting the company sold to Rakuten. Uh, at the time, uh, Rakuten, and it still is today, uh, one of the biggest companies people don't know of. Uh, Rakuten is the largest internet company in Japan. Uh, Jack, uh, Rakuten in Japan only. Uh, there is, uh, I think, 93 million, uh, don't, don't quote me on this, I don't want someone to bash me, 93 million in population, and I think uh, Rakuten's customer base is 90 million. It's, uh, it's like 100% penetration, 99% penetration. So their segue was into the globalization and creating cross-border uh, initiative. They went up and bought uh, on every single continent, large retailers like buy.com. Uh, and in Europe, they bought Price Minister in France. Then in South America, they bought a huge company in Brazil and so forth. So uh, their initiative goal was to empower these manufacturers, change their name to Rakuten. Uh, and at the time of acquisition, I did not want to be involved because I knew that probably hundreds of our employees were definitely going to get canned. Uh, for a restructuring, and I said, and I had to stick around for a year or two uh, just because of my agreement. I said, I want to start a new company, and I think I want to disrupt something that I that that I believe that's big. Uh, and this is something that I'm excited to talk about because as an entrepreneur, you have to know your market. Uh, niche markets will kill you. So my idea was to revert back to the 20 years experience in the fashion and apparel, surf, skatewear that all these cool brands selling at the cool boutiques like Fred Seagull's in, in LA or Henry Bendel in New York, uh, they didn't have a place to sell online. So the idea was to give them this platform, Marketplace, empowering these manufacturers to sell their products online, and it's kind of cool. So uh, worked our butts off, we built a team. Uh, Rakuten took equity, I took equity, and everybody else took equity. We, we went on our merry way. We launched 3,000 brands across every category, men's, women's, kids, housewares. Very cool. So here's the problem. Every single brand on our site, people, I was reading message boards, what is this overpriced shit made in China? Everyone thought it was from China because they're non-branded. <laughs> no one knew right. of it. It was less than 1% of Americans even knew these brands. This, yeah. was the, this was the turning point of my life. I spent so much money on marketing. I was giving away coupons, 25 for 25, friends referrals. Um, I was spending money in keyword search on big, I, which I thought were big search results. Golden Goose back then was getting like 10, 20 search results on Google a week. You yeah. type in Nike, it's tens of millions. So I could not find the customer and it was going to cost a lot. So I had an epiphany. If you think about it in a marketplace, when you have virtual inventory, you have a depository of inventory that is sitting in a database, which I call this virtual inventory. And I had an idea, where do you find the customers in the world? So I flew to New York and I pitched this to Bluefly, 
Blue Fly at the time uh, was the number one fashion uh, flash sale fashion site. They've accumulated three to four million of the one percent Americans that spend gazillions of dollars, and they know these brands because they're boutique brands. And at the time, I was involved with a uh, uh, Clear Lake Capital, a private equity firm, to to acquire uh, Blue Fly, take them private, and then uh, take over. So I wanted to help them, and the idea was empowering Blue Fly with a boutique section. So we literally exposed our APIs to them. They pulled in inventory from all the brands. I was the only, we were the only one in the world that had this data, right? Real-time inventory from 3,000 of these small brands to niche. We turned it on and it turned into 300,000 a day in revenue. We went from 10,000 a day to 300. So I'm like, holy crap, we are onto something. So literally when the, when, when a brand uploads their inventory in, uh, in the vault, it was syndicated on Bluefly. When Bluefly sold it, it decremented the inventory. The, the brand got an email, hey, you got, a, uh, you got an order at Vault. They didn't know where it was coming from. So my initiative was to essentially build this channel advisor, but make more money. We were making 25% commission, and I got my ass raped by management by Mickey, at uh, the founder of Rakuten. I'll say that publicly. Okay. Okay. I really don't care because it makes me upset uh, yeah. that I they their empowerment around people is to foster innovation, foster entrepreneurs in their company, and I think that's bullshit. Okay. I was innovating. I started something. I was creating a dashboard for small businesses. I was empowering them by providing APIs to what they called our competitors. They were so upset at me that I would expose our API, create orders from a, from a competitive type company. You got this small little vault that, that has inventory that could be applicable to 40, 50, hundreds of websites worldwide. It could be a cash register, ting, 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 zero marketing cost. Let other people sell it. Let us process the orders. We do the logistics. And the, it got so bad that I walked. Wow. So you walked from all this successful... I walked because I wanted to make a point. I built something, and and it was more, not pride, but as entrepreneurs, you go through... I spent six months trying to figure out how to find the 1%. We did TV ads, we did this, we did that, right? And, And we're burning money, but we're trying new things. We did these celebrity engagements, blah, blah, blah. But this was, I was exposing a part number to a buyer and we were splitting the profit on it. And it was the right lady that lived in her $10 million house, right? It couldn't get better than that. We're exposing the product and the brand and and our mission statement was to do that. But I was chastised by empowering a competitor. And, And for me, it was like, I felt like I was lying to our brands. I was lying to them because uh, they wanted me to do organic. I wanted to drive revenue for them, and that was the place for it. So I literally walked. So then, so then I guess from working with a um, larger uh, corporation, and and you know, it's it's really interesting that you're touching on this because many of our listeners, you know, perhaps are going to receive uh, an investment or a strategic uh, a proposal from a larger player. So I guess from working with uh, such a large corporation. What was your biggest lesson and perhaps something that the folks that are listening could apply to, to, to their own journey? So are you are you asking a question um, starting something organic uh, within an organization? Just getting a larger, either either starting something as, a, as an like entrepreneur. Like a spin out? Like, a like, spin out like any, anything that is associated to a large corporation where they have a stake. I mean, what was the biggest lesson there for you? I would have never done it. 
I think the biggest lesson I would have had was I would have structured it completely different. And so uh, the the corporate and articles of course corporation gave them full control. So what what happens is, uh, and this is unique, right? So you have a non. Uh, I'm I'm U.S. grown, right? And I'm from the Valley, and I think uh, I I believe in uh, speed. Uh, I I believe in making swift decisions, not hasty decisions. Uh, these companies want to have meetings, to have meetings, to have meetings, to have meetings, and then it creates red tape, and then it just creates uh, frustrations. And yeah. so, um, what my biggest lesson was uh, is that they they I got sucked into the culture of they empower entrepreneurs. They want to do this. I was the first organic uh, subsidiary in the U.S. Uh, uh, and I homegrown. I mean, you know, um, and the biggest lesson lesson if I were ever to do that again. I would make sure the my I's and T's are crossed and the expectations between the decision makers and myself and our team are a hundred percent in line. Because oh. because this is what happens, and I think this is what happens at Rakuten. I think they failed to make good acquisitions because they look at data. So they they now own Viber, so they over have over a billion users, right? So that's their name name. That's kind of their name to claim the fame. They have customers and uh, you know uh, uh, over a billion users. So they they look at data um, derivative from their culture, right? Asian culture or even in in Japan, and they look at what has been successful in their culture. They are sold on it. They do not look over it. They are not uh, willing to he- receive constructive criticism. They are it's their way or the highway. And this has nothing to do with just Rakuten. But larger corporations, because listen, every big company is derivative from one thing. What's the metric? It's KPIs. So as they review KPIs for certain product lines, certain categories, certain services, that is the Bible. So when they implement their international one into a market in the U.S. where we launched, it's a flop of 180 degrees. We don't do business this way. So one, I'd be very hesitant to, to organically partner this way. Uh, I would I would never do it again. Uh, but if you do, I would definitely make sure the expectations are written out uh, come clearly. Uh, that is probably the biggest lesson I learned for sure. And and also one of the things here, like when you are dealing with a publicly traded company, I mean, going back to what you were mentioning, KPIs, I mean, for them, revenue is everything. And in many instances where you try to monetize so quickly and so early in certain projects, you're killing the creativity around it. Yep. So I um, yes. But but let me tell you this. I think um, doing this in Rakuten uh, brought me to um, brought me to a whole another no- level for m- for the way my brain works. So we can talk about that in a minute. In yeah, so I, I, I want to talk about I want to talk about your your next chapter now with uh, HubX. Yep. Uh, so I know that you spent after this. So obviously you you walked away. You were very disappointed from this experience. And uh, but obviously you you brought with yourself a ton of lessons that you've learned. Yeah, uh, and 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 basically, you were for about three years doing, you know, some angel investments, mentoring some startups before you actually started. Now, your your most recent company, which we're going to be talking about. But yeah. I want to ask you: during those three to four years, being involved with founders and investing in companies, I mean, you got some exits too. What were some of the patterns from the founders that had the most potential? What what were some of these ingredients? So I, I think the most ingredients starts at the the top, um, and and it starts with the founders, right? Um, two things. One, uh, 
when I look at a company for investment, I'm not investing in the idea. I'm not investing in the technology. I am not investing in the pre, uh, uh, what, what is it, a patent pending. Uh, I'm not investing for in the environment that they're in or the location. I'm investing in, in the entrepreneur. Um, there, one thing that I look at is someone that is so smart uh, and dedicated and is humble and has built that literally takes the backseat and allows his his organization rise. That is the best leader. So those those are uh, those are really two critical critical things uh, for me as I look at an investment. Uh, it's the passion and the desire. It, it is. It has nothing to do with the product they're in. Maybe ninety ninety percent, not ten percent. Yes. Um, I actually have to believe a believer in the product, but it, it, but more importantly, it's, it's, it's the founder or founders, uh, how they think, how they interact, how they, how they, how do they work in, in stressful environments and are they problem solvers and are they willing to change? Are they willing to make swift changes? Uh, those are the ones that are, are the gold in my mind from an investment standpoint. For sure. So then, so then let's say shift gears here and, and let's talk about HubX from zero to 200 million in 12 months. How the hell did you do that? And, and first <laughs> and foremost, how did you get started with this business? What was the yeah. trigger for this idea? Yeah. So um, at the time, I, I, I mean, just a few years ago, I was 46. Uh, just I, I spent, uh, yes, I spent three years. Uh, I went through a crazy divorce, uh, a good divorce. It was good. We're great now, but I was going through a divorce uh, and I wanted to get my mind mentally back in the game. Uh, uh, I had, I told everyone in my family, I have one more thing in me. Uh, I spent time uh, um, sitting down with all my, so all, so I kind of grew up in Silicon Valley and then I grew up in, in, in LA. So all my friends are, you know, you know, we're, we were, we were pre pre Bitcoin of knowledge. My good friend in high school is, uh, Roger Veer, Bitcoin Jesus. Like I, I, like my whole life, like I know everyone, Bitcoin blockchain. I was enamored at all this stuff and, and been involved and, and, but, but for me, uh, my decision was I want to do one last deal. Uh, but I wanted to do fundamentally a couple things. One was I wanted to use uh, all my experience in the past. So um, I'm fascinated around e-commerce, even though it's not sexy. Um, I'm fascinated on international transactions. I'm fascinated with distribution, and, and, and we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, but more importantly, I wanted to build a company that 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 had the foundation of a team that was their primary goal was 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 having complete respect for one another, um, and I finally realized before I even started HubX is that my desires was to build something that I could say without a doubt in my mind that I know I can do. I don't I don't know how big of an exit. I don't care. Uh, I, how can we make this profitable? How can we disrupt? And it turned into this mindset: How do I do something in thirty years and build it for young kids? And let them taste success, mentor them, but in my own company, in our own company, and it's a family. So um, I was enamored at the distribution. My best, my best friend uh, had uh, moved from LA to Miami, had a distribution company, 
he said, Derek, can you please, please, please just spend a week or two with me? And, and, and I want to sell my company. He started it 20 years ago. Uh, it's definitely not sexy. He moves a lot of revenue, blah, blah, blah. And I was able to take a, as I said, okay, I, I kind of, I understand logistics. I understand distribution. I understand e-commerce. Um, I know, you know, B2C, uh, done B2B, uh, in my wheelhouse. So, um, I was, I was invited, uh, uh, to go to Harvard, uh, HBX and, uh, to take a class with Christian, uh, um, uh, and, uh, around innovation, uh, disruptive innovation in large companies, broken companies, barbaric companies, broken from a technology's perspective, people that are working spreadsheets like that. So that came down the distribution and so forth. So, uh, at the end of uh, school, I came down, well, in the middle of school, I came down with a thesis that distribution was broken. There's a multi-trillion dollar industry out there that needs to be fixed. Uh, and, and my thesis was written on what HubX is today. Now, the identifiers of why I made this decision, and then I jumped in head first. So one, I believe that B2B commerce uh, is broken from a manufacturer's perspective. But then I think uh, manufacturers uh, or B2B sites are broken from uh, a platform and technology's perspective. So uh, I would like to talk two things about that, and you guys will get it. So you have the Alibabas. of They expose the seller, and they expose the buyer. Uh, there's $32 billion a year that happens uh, from a transactional off these sites because they know each other. Um, it's one of uh, eBay's biggest problems from a consumer perspective on controlling data and controlling people to buy uh, outside of their platform. And with Amazon, I don't know, but I've heard it, it's, it's tens of billions of dollars where people are gathering and buying product outside of their platform. So uh, the idea was to create this anonymous platform that was driven by technology uh, that empowered manufacturers, that empowered these vendors, that empowered distributors, it was the most unsexy business that I, I've ever done, right? <laughs> but it was, you know, it's turning into an ATM. It's, it's changing things. People are talking about it. Uh, so as I dug deep down granular, uh, I knew that these businesses were buying on spreadsheets. I knew they were buying on part numbers. They weren't buying on sexy images. They weren't buying on pictures. They weren't buying. So... Uh, um, in class, uh, I tested it. I built a very flat HTML, ugly. I have pictures of it somewhere. Uh, and, and our site today still is ugly, which I, 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 I'll share some stuff with you if you guys want to see it. But um, I, I wanted to create this idea around part numbers. My mom, who's been around with me forever, and my dad, I showed them what we were doing in Thanksgiving, and they're like, there's no freaking way you can be processing at the time a million dollars a day or 800,000 a day on pure data and pure part numbers, right, from leading tier one to people, and that's the market for us. So the goal was to test it in school, and I created this platform. We launched it. I tested it. I, I launched vendors, did this thing, and I tested it for like after school, I even tested it. Like my thesis was about this. We did it under some weird domain. Uh, we produced sixty million dollars in this beta test. So, in November first, in two thousand eighteen, I decided uh, this is a valuable business. This isn't just a niche. Uh, just like Amazon started with books, we started with computers because I know it really well. 
uh, and started, I started building a technology company. Um, so we built a technology company. And if you want to ask me questions around that or my biggest problems or biggest successes and yeah, things so I've learned. Guess, yep. Yeah, no, so I, I, I guess start on, there. Yep. On, on how big, same, Derek, I want yep. to ask, I mean, obviously this, this sounds kind of like, um, like a Amazon, but B2B style. Would you yep, say that's 100%. Accurate? A hundred percent. Okay. Really cool. So then, yeah. so, so, then so here's the deal. Just so everyone knows this, every manufacturer, computers, mobile phones, uh, desk, clothing, hardware, computers, D links of the world, fashion, whatever they're produced by manufacturers. Do you know that 62% go to retail and the rest are just are, are to jobbers, they call them, or these brokers and they're losing their margins. If they send these, even even uh, Kate Spades of the world or these big, they're sending spreadsheets to get bids for it. So there's a huge broken market, and it's called secondary distribution that that we're tackling. So 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 lo and behold, we launched the company. I got on a plane. I flew to the Lenovo. I flew to Dell. I flew to every refurbishing center. And I said, here's my story. My story is to empower manufacturers and distributors. Distributors like Tech Data, they do 100 or 300 billion a year each in revenue. Uh, they buy all the Apple. They get stuck with billions of dollars. There's no outlet for it. They send it in a spreadsheet. You get Dick that buys it and puts it on eBay for 199. It screws up pricing globally. And, they, and it might be a, a, a $100 million lot. And one product out there is screwing up his market. So our business model is empower the manufacturers and distributors to move the excess inventory. They price it. They control it. It's literally like the Amazon, but it's B2B. But here's the great thing. And this is the coolest thing in the world. When we started this company, we wrote our core values. One of our core, core values is on our site. It says, uh, we're, we're something about a driven, innovative company. Our best ideas are yet to come. Within six months of launching, we created this. I had this idea about an anonymity. So be, be not losing that customer to the seller because they're in the know. We vet the customer. We vet the seller. We're in the midst of it. We're the merchant of record. We do all the logistics, but it keeps them anonymous. So we built tools for these customers to communicate to the vendor uh, anonymously. So if I'm a customer and I want more stock, I can click a button. The vendor is actually notified that this customer is, but they don't even know who the customer is. They drop the price, they place the order. This customer uh, wants, uh, uh, I mean, want inventory, they load it, they buy it. Uh, customers, uh, 500 customers don't like a price. If they click, I want a price drop, vendor logs into his dashboard and notification. He sees 500 people waiting for a price drop. The vendor literally drops the price. SMSs, notifications goes out. It's freaking amazing. So we're creating this like ecosystem around anonymity that it doesn't expose it. So it protects us. Uh, and that's where we're winning on it. So over the last 12, mo 12 months, I think we've seen a huge increase of the uh, revenues because we are really disrupting a market like no, no one's ever done before. Uh, but we are from a technical perspective, we're 100% technology, building very innovative tools that have never been done. Uh, and I, and I, as an entrepreneur, I don't like to reinvent wheels. I like to lead and be a, 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 a blaze, uh, blazing my own path uh, with testing data and so forth. So then, so then, really cool. I mean, it seems that you guys have obviously hit product market fit, and and the revenue is a good testament to that. But I want to ask you, why did you? I mean, with this massive growth, why didn't you raise money? I didn't need to. 
Why why was that the case? How did you support the the growth? This cr crazy growth. Yeah. So uh, I I mean I I had so when. Thursday is my finance meeting, and I'm I'm actually looking at my balance sheet. And 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 you you saw my GA. You know we 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 have you know thirty to fifty million dollars in cash just sitting and circulating in our business. Um, and we started it because you know I I think uh, what I've learned in the past, and and I'm not you guys, everyone on this podcast. There's a right way to start a company. There's a wrong way. Um, there is. The Ubers of the world, there's the smaller niche of the world. It, it's it's to your desire if you want a partner. But raising money is nothing wrong with that. I have so many friends that are VCs, and they've been begging me to put, raise money, which is even possible because I think we will. But um, I wanted I I wanted to do something that was crazy. Everyone thought I was crazy not to raise money, and but I wanted to prove a point. I think proving points is one thing, but then again, we had the money to do it. Um, and I didn't want to get diluted, you know, at some, you know, at the time at five or $6 million when you, you know, incorporate a company and have an idea. I just, I, I wanted to have revenue growth, uh, proof of points. Uh, and, and we've been, uh, we've been, we've, the biggies, uh, the, the, the three biggies, um, uh, are knocking on a door and we're not, we're not home. We're not answering the door. Um, yeah. I really think if we do this right, uh, it's, it's going to, it's going to be the next, you know, uh, it's going to be different than it's what's unique about it. It's different than Rakuten. It's different than Alibaba. It's just different than Amazon where I'm only using tools to disrupt a market. That's a trillion dollar industry globally. Um, and I, it could be, you know, I, I don't know what our exit's going to be. I don't know what our decisions will be. I'm open for discussions always. Well, look, I think that it's like, like everything in life, you know, every, every, every stage or every time in history is different. So the next, Facebook or the but next they're, Alibaba. But they're is not they're cal they're, so I'm I'm back at Harvard Business School. Um, we just did a case on uh, Kareem. Prior to that, we did a case on Nasty Girl, uh, who went bankrupt. Um, I'll tell you this: there's the the data is so critical in this time of infancy to make drastic, but yet not drastic decisions. And and so there's theories around cases about uh, early decisions will affect your company in the long run. Yeah, I say no, but I say yes at the same time. But but there's you every day as an entrepreneur, you're always at a section of left or right. I make probably like everyone on here, we make hundreds of decisions. People are in my office. What do I do? You just answer it, answer, it, answer, it, answer, it, answer. It. Yeah. Or you answer it with best thought, right? Or you don't even know you answer it. Sure. Uh, but but the decisions we I believe that the decisions we make today are become the foundation. But but more importantly, uh, what I've learned from from doing this, uh, it's the team, not me. Uh, one the biggest thing my dad ever 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 taught me is this: you do that, you will be successful. And ever since it's from day one of my life, I've done it. I am definitely not the smartest guy in the room. I, you know, this, this year, uh, my biggest hurdle ever, and I blame myself is we ran into some technical problems because I hired a, IT, uh, a CTO, uh, and he misled to me. Uh, he lied to me. Uh, we draw, we drew out the whole schematic of how I wanted it architecture and the CQRS that was very flexible. Blah, blah, blah. And yes, 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 yes. With the day we launched, because we launched very fast. Uh, our company just crumbled. It just was breaking, breaking, breaking. I literally pulled down our whole code, everything, and I just I bawled for an hour. 
I can't imagine. It was, it was nothing like it. He agreed. I exposed it to him. And the next day he quit. So, so last year I took on the role as CTO. Um, I could just tell, I just want everyone to know on this and it, whether you're t- technical or non-technical, I'm non-technical, but I'm very, very technical. Um, I don't code, but I, I understand uh, probably 99% of it. Uh, don't put your head down. I trusted someone. Uh, and I didn't, I was, I was out there as a CEO, uh, uh, selling our business, right. Going and meeting with big manufacturers and, and doing deals and customers and this and that. And, and, but don't keep your eyes off the core of your foundation. If you're a technology company, be involved. Don't, 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 don't not be involved. And, that, and that's a great uh, piece of advice because in many instances, you know, as the founder and, and CEO, you have so many different fronts that you have open that it's just so easy to get distracted and, and get your eyes off the ball. Well, yes, but now, now it's been seven months now I've been CTO and, but my, it's, it was amazing that I saw our team, they rise, leaders rise. The, we, you know, I, I, we're in Miami. The worst thing, so I moved to Miami because I believe that it was a tech center and, and a fragmented broken thing where there's amazing talent. There's so many smart people here. However, uh, we are very, we're a small little company. We're a small, small startup, no matter what our revenues are. We're, we're hiring one employee per 800 resumes. It's yeah. awful. Because so, how, how many people do you guys have now, Derek? Uh, 100. I think we're at 118. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. And how so, in how scale- in how much time did you did you hire all these people? I mean, over the last year. <laughs> I mean, I wow. I, I think we we launched the company with like uh, 14 developers and me and and a few other people and 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 but then we have logistics and that's a whole nother can of worms, right? I mean. We yeah. shipped. Uh, we last year we shipped to 101 countries. So the 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 starting of this company was so complex infrastructure wise, but it wasn't an infrastructure. It was technology and legal infrastructure. Meaning, uh, I had you know all the you know uh, TSA at my home. Make, there's so much fraud in in Miami and these money laundering laws. Blah blah blah. Legal documents and tariffs and customs through each country is 101. Whole new thing. So from a from a technical perspective, uh, and but it was more of a tangible structure issue of putting up the company. A fast, simple, easy measurement. You have to yeah. scale, but there's so much back payment work to do to get these things live. So I, I think that's where we got. You know that 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 is where we started before. You know, right when we started building code too. To onboard these customers are is a is a is not like you log in. We don't even pay. Uh, by the way, we we are 100 digital. Uh, we don't even take credit cards. So so well, that's amazing. So then, let me ask you this because this growth is just unbelievable. So what is what would you say it has been the biggest challenge for you guys for the business so far? My decision on uh, letting a CTO lead and not being on top of them. Got it. Got yeah. it. That makes a complete sense. So so would you say that? So yeah. And and when you're hiring Derek, you know Miami obviously is uh, it's coming. It has come along. Uh, I, I mean, it's growing like crazy, like the um, the the startup scene and all of this. But it's definitely not a, like a Bay Area or New no, York no, no, City. No, 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 it's not. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. So how how did you go about you know hiring all these people in 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 twelve months? So uh, friends of friends that I know because I run with everyone. Uh, I tried the recruiter route where you pay twenty five thousand dollars a hire. Uh, I probably lost a hundred grand doing that because no one worked out and fired him. 
um, it's so now we have uh, automated uh, uh, two two tests. Um, we took actual code to resolve that that our team has resolved for our company, uh, and they are challenging code, but they're not too crazy. Uh, and then we do a Myers Briggs test. So I we understand like are they your personality and do they have the same values and you know um, and the the biggest thing that I've learned in companies in general uh, every company every single employee we hire it comes to me right after they've been vetted by their department yeah. and and the only thing that I do is I ask them questions I want to know who they are. I want to know what they enjoy outside of work. I want to know why they want to work at our company. I want to know little things. And they're triggered questions for me to really identify. What, After what's, every, the, what's the question that you listen to the most for the answer? Um, I'll give you an example. And this poor kid, I wanted to write him and tell him that um, well, one of my first questions, obviously, after I get the salutation of, you know, hi, how are you? And where do you live? Blah, 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 uh, is why do you want to work here? That gives so, you well, Yesterday, a poor kid who um, the guy scored 100% on his test, brilliant kid, um, said, I'm here because I know that I can make more money here yeah. than my other job. Obviously, oh, that's a red Last question I asked him, I said, where do you see yourself in three to five years? Like in general, I, I personally, this, that, he said, making a lot of money, whether it's here or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. So, I mean, uh, you know, like th these stupid keywords, you can learn a lot about people, right? Like that's, yeah. that's so, so then honestly, every single hire comes to me. All I do. So uh, our people in tech come in and say, okay, yesterday we had four interviews. We I had four people go in my office at the end. I talked to them for literally 10 minutes or one girl that we're hiring. I spent an hour with her. She's just a rock star. Uh, and, and then. And my, my guys come in and they talk to them from a technical perspective. I talk to them from a human perspective, layman terms, right? And yeah. it's and it matches 8A. Like it's like it's like one-to-one. It's one-to-one, one-to-one, one-to-one. And 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 so that's how we're building our team. Uh it's uh it's a, it's 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 that kind of that old uh, bootstrap uh you know mentality. And now and the more you, the more smarter uh you hire, the the more pool of, of developers that becomes apparently available through their friends because smart people hang out with smart people, right? Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so let me ask you, let me ask you this, Derek. So, and, and really quickly here, uh, I want to get your thoughts in a world where the vision of HubX has been fully realized. What does that world look like? Um, simple. It's Amazon started in books. HubX started with computers and the story. <laughs> So I, I think we amass. I, I think we amass a globalized marketplace um, that's that's untouched. Um, so um, we've been vetted by the big three. And Amazon's been one of them, and I think they're enamored on how we built this. Um, big companies um, are run by crazy KPIs, and people sometimes don't know what they're doing, and so forth. So uh, it allows companies like us a baby to represent rep, like really disrupt them um and and i think we continue to do what we're doing and i i, I would like to share something the really interesting thing is out of the 101 countries that we ship to um it's multifaceted it's not one 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 section or sector not 
We sell computers. I got a picture the other day with a HubX, big HubX sticker on the back of a donkey in Africa with 25 uh, notebooks from one of our distributors. The guy was walking computers into each village and selling them one by one, one village to one computer. So they had Internet conductivity. And then we're, we have all these global um, jargon nuts that are buying us these huge retailers here in the U.S. or in, uh, international. And, and we have these small mom and pop stores and retailers and, and South America is huge and, and, and so forth. And um, the unique thing is for me, um, 30% of our sales are in the U.S., 70% is international. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that big companies like I was, I mean, this is my segue into my answer, like an Amazon. Um, uh, they don't know how to penetrate the, these global markets. And I think we're creating a niche. And the, the, the best thing that I saw last week, we had our, our, uh, the guy that runs, uh, we just launched mobile phones, by the way. And, um, uh, they're at this trade show in, in Colombia, you know, HubX was there, had a huge booth, not even huge. Uh, there was 40 people in line for three hours straight waiting to talk to people and every single one was vacant. And so what I figured out was this and, and, and I'll shut up. <laughs> there was 9.9 billion phones in the market. We started with computers, which is around 700 million. It's small, it's niche. We, we actually own the worldwide rights to Lenovo factory privileges and so forth. We have a massive facility in Arkansas. But uh, mobile phones is a big, no one repackaging, refurbishing, making used phones like new. And yeah. that's the market that we are hitting. And they are, I mean, our, our mobile revenue uh, is growing 100% week over week. It's unbelievable. So unbelievable. we want to we learn from what these are going, and then we'll apply them to other categories down the road. So the long term, the answer to your long term is we want to become this massive uh, mall that is driven from uh, uh, storefront outlets by brand and manufacturer. No matter if it's the manufacturer direct or it's sold by it, uh, seven vendors are selling in, in that same product category. And we just become a we metastasize. We actually take over the world. And I think that's, you know, that's what we want to build. Hey, taking over the world. I love it. So, uh, no, Derek. Okay. That's the goal, right? I mean, it sounds <laughs> yeah, ambitious. And, and I'm not being uh, arrogant and or narcissistic. But, I mean, um, but that's the goal for, for me, I guess. And um, But, look, at the end of the day, Derek, you have to always uh, shoot for the moon and even if you miss you know the stars are there so it's it's all about thinking big and and that's it so i i i really love where you guys are heading with it so so derek one question that i always ask the um the guests that come to the show is um i mean you you've been at it for for you know so many rodeos i mean we've we've we've, we've had the opportunity and the pleasure to really discuss them all and for our listeners to really had an insight into into what that looked like that journey so i guess now if if i had to ask you derek uh, that you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self before launching a business. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself and why? Don't be hasty. And and if you could further uh, expand on that. Yeah, so I, you know, I think when you said younger, I thought about arrogant Derek, the guy sitting on a soapbox making hasty decisions. Uh, yeah. That was all, that was not humble. That was all about me. My decision making was for me and my family. Um, and, and it makes me almost teary, teary to think that that, that was me. Um, the change, uh, 
is a fundamentally a hundred percent or hundred and eighty percent direction of, of how I am today for the last probably fifteen twenty years now. Um, I realized one thing: building companies isn't about one person. Building companies is with a team. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. You can go at it uh, faster alone or farther when you go with a team. Yeah, exactly. So it makes sense. So, so Derek, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you guys to Oh, uh, anywhere. LinkedIn, Twitter. I haven't used my Twitter in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I really haven't, like, since it launched. I don't know. I think I, I, I have. A, I think my post only, there's one post on there that says I was at, uh, the, I'm a, I'm a tech guy for the, uh, no, Kim Kardashian of, of tech. Cause I had so many followers and then I, I never did anything with it. Um, or reach out to me, Derek, Derek at hubx.com, D E R E K at hubx.com. Uh, or shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Facebook, uh, Derek wall, um, my residence in Miami, Florida. Amazing. Well, Derek, thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today. Thank you so much guys. Everyone have a great time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.